You're listening to Just Medicine, an equity and healthcare podcast created by medical students in British Columbia. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Just Medicine. For this month's episode, we are diving into addiction medicine with Dr. Elise Jackson, and our specific focus today is on how to take a good substance use history. Dr. Jackson, who is an addiction medicine fellow at UBC, is going to also discuss the importance of attention to substance use, particularly in the context of BC's growing opioid crisis. A significant part of substance use is learning the terminology. The terms that we reviewed in this episode are included in the show notes for you to refer back to. Remember that street terms for drugs can change with time and geography, but these can give you a good starting point in when you're taking your substance use history. Our conversation actually had a lot of overlapping themes with last month's episode on trauma-informed care with Dr. Hubinet, and this again reinforces the importance of intersectionality within health equity. There are significant associations between surviving trauma and substance use, and sometimes substance use can actually begin as a way to cope with the trauma that people have experienced. On a different note, our podcast team is expanding and we'll soon have different hosts for each episode. So you can stay tuned to hear from different voices in the next couple of months. And as always, enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Just Medicine. This month, we're delving into substance use and specifically how to take a good substance use history from your patients with Dr. Elise Jackson. Dr. Jackson is completing her fellowship in general internal medicine at UBC with a focus on addictions medicine. Her work in medicine is focused on health equity and social justice. And we also worked together when I was an MSI 3 on CTU and she was my lead resident. Elise, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Wonderful. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your hobbies, your passions inside and outside of medicine? Absolutely. Um, I have a bit of a, a geographically convoluted history. I was actually born in Newfoundland and then grew up mostly in Australia. So my family moved to Australia when I was five and lived there in Sydney until I was about 16. Uh, and then moved back to Ottawa, which is where I finished high school. Uh, I completed my undergrad studies uh, at McGill in Montreal and then went to Toronto for medical school. And since residency, um, so for the last four years, have been out here in BC and have done my core internal medicine residency and now my GIM fellowship uh, out at UBC and certainly have no intention of leaving the West Coast at this point. Um, outside of medicine, I generally like to spend as much time outside as possible. Um, a big hiker and camper and, um, yeah, really loving the West coast lifestyle of living by the ocean and close to the mountains. So yeah, spending as much time outside as possible with, with friends and with my partner. Other than that, I also am a big uh, reader as well. I am still in a book club with a group of women from med school, which has been a really fun way of maintaining connection with all of them since since medical school. So yeah, 
keeping keeping busy and trying to keep as much balance outside of medicine as I can. That's awesome. So you, I think I counted four different provinces, but it seems like you've chosen BC as your as your West Coast best coast, um, and and sticking around. Yes, yes, certainly. Um, yeah, don't have much intention of heading back to Ontario. The West Coast lifestyle is pretty pretty enticing, definitely. As someone who came here when she was 11 and has never left the the West Coast, I totally get it. It's just the weather and just the lifestyle is uncomparable. What book are you guys doing in your book club right now? The most recent book that we um, have read and are going to discuss shortly is a book called um, Hello Beautiful, uh, which is a really, really beautifully written novel. Um yeah, would highly recommend. We've read some really great, some really, really great books, mostly mostly fiction and mostly non-medicine, which is a really nice way to to balance. But I will say book club ends up being like 30 minutes of discussing the book and two hours of catching up and and hanging out. So that's wonderful. Uh, are you guys doing it like on on Zoom and just chatting virtually? A combination. Um, most of the rest of the group stayed in Ontario. Um, so most of them or they will often meet in person and then I and maybe one or two other people will zoom in. Um, when we were all in Toronto, we we did it all in person and it was a great excuse to, yeah, everyone would bring a bottle of wine and some snacks and stuff. So they definitely, yeah, residency has changed it, but it used to be in person. Nice. I, I just love hearing what people in medicine do to got, like balance their life out um, and just have some things to look forward to and having your girlfriends who are in medicine, but uh, you can hang out with them and talk about them, talk with them about non-medical things, I think is one of the best ways to just uh, cool off, catch up and have, have a good social life with people who kind of get it. Definitely. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Uh, we'll jump right in um, to talk a little bit about kind of like the context and the background of why we're talking about why why it's important to take a good social history or uh, good substance use history, especially for our pre preclinical students who maybe haven't been to St. Paul's and haven't seen the patient population that we work with. Can you tell us a little bit about just um, the common substances that are being used in Canada and substance use rates and just a little bit of background in why substance use is so prevalent and important in medicine to us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the way I think of it is, um, you know, when we're thinking about diseases or, or disease processes that have an impact, thinking about sort of how much of an impact they have in terms of years of life lost and death rates. And, um, you know, particularly over the last few years, the, the death rates from uh, substance use and from overdoses has really skyrocketed. And I think when we think about the demographic that substance use affects, it is often, you know, younger or to middle-aged people. And so when these people die from overdoses or die from other complications of their substance use, we really have such a huge, um, such a huge loss of sort of potential life years. And Conversely, I think if we're able to treat people for their substance use disorders um, and prevent that death or morbidity and mortality, we're able to gain back such a huge, um, you know, chunk of of enjoyable, productive life for people. And so, 
it certainly, I think it it can gain a reputation as being a bit of a frustrating field or challenging field to work in, and it can be at times. But when you do have success, I think it's just such a, a meaningful change in people's lives. Uh, and so that's certainly why I think it's important. And, you know, when we're actually talking about sort of concrete numbers, um, you know, over the last 10 years in BC, for example, um, deaths from illicit drugs has actually outstripped all other unnatural causes of death. So that's including, um, you know, suicide, homicide, motor vehicle accidents, other things like that. Um, and now actually causes more death than all of those other unnatural causes of death combined. And I think, you know, when we think about substance use and the impact that it has, we often, particularly in BC, think about opioids. Um, and for good reason, they dominate a lot of the public conversation about, about um, drug use, partially because they are uh, so toxic and there is so much toxicity associated with them. But I think we also um, can often forget that the actually the most commonly used substances and the ones that... Um, cause actually the largest number of deaths are the substances that are legal in Canada. And so um, when we talk about rates of use, certainly alcohol, both within Canada and within BC is the highest. Um, you know, in any given year, around sort of 70 to 80 percent of people will report using alcohol. Not that that means they have an alcohol use disorder, but it's a hugely prevalent drug. Um, you know, following alcohol Tobacco and, and marijuana are sort of the second most commonly used drugs. And as I said, you know, these are actually the drugs that cause, just because of their prevalence, the most amount of harm. So, um, for example, in Canada, you know, the data, it always takes a few years to catch up on the data, but in 2017, um, there were about 48,000 people who died of, um, of uh, tobacco-related death. Um, and whereas, uh, you know, the rates were much lower for other substances. So, um, alcohol, uh, in that same year caused about 17,000 compared to 48,000 and opioid use caused about six and a half thousand. Um, obviously some of those rates have changed since 2017, but I think, um, you know, we, we think of these drugs as being legal and so potentially less harmful, uh, but they're really not. There's huge um, harm that can come from these substances that are are legal um, in terms of, uh, you know, when it comes to tobacco, thinking about increased rates of lung cancer, increased rates of cardiovascular disease. Um, with alcohol, obviously, we think of the liver implications and the rates of cirrhosis and um, hepatocellular carcinoma, as well as, you know, alcohol-related cardiomyopathies and um, arrhythmias and things like that. I really actually appreciate you talking about the sort of, sort of legal, in quotes, uh, substances that are, I guess, less stigmatized compared to when we talk about opioids and other illicit uh, substances. Um, it is very interesting to put it in perspective. I know the data is a little bit older from a few years ago, but it's really interesting to put it in perspective of how much of these um, uh, substances that are part of like day-to-day -day lives are still a huge uh, burden in terms of the complications that they can cause. And it's really important that we keep those also in mind and we screen for those as well in our history when we get when we get to talking about it. 
you know, to me, it serves as a bit of a reminder as well that, um, you know, the laws that we have around substance use aren't necessarily based in science um, or based in, you know, what is actually on a population level the most harmful. Um, and that, you know, the root of a lot of the laws that we have are rooted more in in colonialism and kind of political opportunism as opposed to really being kind of science or evidence-based. Yeah, uh, I think that's a great point to point out of what necessarily is legal doesn't mean, in some cases doesn't mean it's scientifically backed or in, in other cases meaning ethical or moral. Um, and it's really important for us as healthcare providers to to definitely keep it in mind. Um, and in kind of touching on you know, legality and, and, and things like that. Um, we can talk a little bit about maybe like intersectionality and how substance use in general kind of affects people who are already disproportionately um, marginalized or um, disservice populations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think substance use that way is a little bit of a, it can form a little bit of a sort of negative cycle in that, um, People who are already marginalized, whether that's, um, you know, based on being indigenous, being a person of color, um, being uh, LGBTQ, being already um, sort of economically or socially marginalized, um, substance rate, substance use rates among these populations are already much higher. And then in addition, as you mentioned, there's so much stigma around substance use that that substance use itself also becomes a form of marginalization and sort of further isolates and further adds to that intersectionality. Um, and we really see that worn out in who sort of um, bears the brunt of, of these deaths and of the kind of uh, harm and toxicity associated with it. So, um, for example, I think, you know, we can't really think about substance use uh, in Canada specifically, without thinking about how it has disproportionately affected uh, Indigenous people because of the histories of intergenerational trauma and how substances were introduced by settlers to to Indigenous communities. And that sort of disproportionate harm is really perpetuated still. So some, some data from BC, for example, um, Indigenous people make up about 3.3% of BC's population. Um, but in 2020, 14.7% of uh, um, people who died from uh, the toxic drug crisis were Indigenous, so being represented, sort of overrepresented almost five times um, what their actual representation in the population is, and so really bearing a, a hugely disproportionate um, weight from the, from the toxicity um, and the harms of these drugs. And I think, like, very well said. It, the other thing that ties into it is that because especially um, indigenous folk, but also other marginalized groups tend to seek healthcare less frequently and be more reluctant to seek healthcare. So they tend to also not necessarily go and find um, professional like medical help when they do need it. So they tend to come in with more severe outcomes of substance use or in, in a lot of the cases, uh, a death. Um, and that's, I think, part of why they are also overrepresented in and the fatalities. And this is something that's not, you know, it's not in the past. Like we had the in-plane site report from 2020 showing all the different 
um, accounts of indigenous people within BC, like very locally for us, um, who were mistreated and discriminated against for by other healthcare providers, by healthcare providers for being indigenous and created an unsafe environment. So we can't, you know, when, when you look at why people aren't coming to uh, what we to showing up for their appointments or when I think when we get frustrated about like, oh, this person had all of these appointments set up for them. Why aren't they showing up? These could be some of the reasons. Um, and I think that's part of the what you were mentioning about, like people feeling um, like substance use can be a frustrating field to work in. But it's because there's all of these system systemic factors that aren't being addressed. And sure, you see it as, a, oh, this person person no showed five times. But is it because the time that they did show up, they were made to feel not welcomed or discriminated against or mistreated? And it's something that, again, I think goes into my practice of um, understanding why something happened rather than, okay, it happened and then moving on. Something I think about a lot is, um, and I think we'll talk about it a bit more later in terms of getting a substance use history, but being cautious about not re-traumatizing people um, and not contributing to the trauma that people do experience, unfortunately, um, at the hands of the healthcare system. And like you said, not just historically, but ongoing to this day. Can we talk a little bit about um, BC recently decriminalized, like within the past year, um, small amounts of drug possession and how, if any, has that changed your experience with patients or um, things, stories that you've heard um, being in the um, addictions medicine circles? Yeah, I I would say in a Vancouver context that it hasn't made a huge difference in terms of my interactions with patients that I've seen. Um, you know, I think although the law was just changed recently and, and specifically, I believe it was that um, People are now allowed to carry up to 2.5, I believe is the cutoff, 2.5 grams of drugs for, of any drug for personal use. Um, So anything over 2.5 grams, people can still be criminalized for. And if they're able to prove or suggest that you had intent of selling or distributing the drug, then that law doesn't apply. Um, So even though that rule or that law was just um, passed, as you said, kind of within the last year, I believe in January of 2023, um, the Vancouver Police Department had essentially had an agreement to operate under that understanding for several years already. And so it was already quite rare, although, you know, did still happen that people would be criminalized for simple possession. Um, I imagine that in smaller communities um, where that kind of um, agreement didn't exist, that this would be a more significant change um, and would change the relationship between kind of law enforcement and people using drugs. Um, I think it does afford people a bit of a level of safety and a little bit of a level of comfort to not have to be living in so much fear of being criminalized. Um, But I wouldn't say that at day to day it has really uh, sort of changed things um, Again, just in the context that I'm I'm working in. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I think especially within like VGH and St. Paul's, we see so many 
patients coming in with substance use as maybe their main complaint or main presenting problem, whether it's if they are found found down or with an altered level of consciousness, or it'll be one of the many problems they will have um, as they present. So it is it's it's much more common, at least within the hospitalized patients that um, came through us anyway, with both of us being in internal medicine. Um, yeah. I think we, we, and we chatted about this a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about if there are circumstances where med students or residents are approached by law enforcement about, and they're asking about um, a patient's history or whatever, uh, asking for information from medical trainees, how would you recommend that they um, interact with law enforcement and what, what they can tell them? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm I'm not a lawyer. I don't know fully all of the laws around this, but I, I think it's important to remember, um, you know, that that police officers are not actually, in most cases, part of the circle of care, and you know, police officers certainly can present as being a somewhat imposing presence, and certainly come with, um, you know, a position of authority. And I think they can often ask questions of us in a way that implies that they have a right to know certain information. Um, and I think it's important for for trainees, so med students and residents to feel empowered um, to be able to say, no, I, I am not able to share that with you. The exceptions being if either the patient has provided consent for you to share it with the police officer or if they have... Um, you know, a warrant or affidavit of some kind that says that they are allowed access to the information. But with that, you know, with those exceptions, um, typically police officers don't have a right to know medical information about a patient. And so I would say that if you're ever unsure, I would err on the side of uh, not offering information and checking with your attending or checking with, um, you know, ethics or whoever at your hospital you can reach out to for support. But certainly don't feel that you are obligated or legally required to share that information because uh, often you're not and really, really shouldn't be. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think it's something that we don't don't talk about enough in terms of our interactions um, with other um, people in positions of power. I think we do a great job in med, med school about talking with other allied health professionals, nurses, PTs, OTs, like we get those exposures, but there are lots of other um, professional bodies that we that we regularly work with, especially in, in the clinical setting. Um, and so it's important for us to know what we can and we can, what we are obliged to share and what we aren't necessarily needing to share. And um, with that, I wanted to maybe transition a little bit into talking about um, how we take a, a good substance use history. And I think something that for me when I was um, in med school and even still, um, something that I sometimes struggle with is knowing all the, the, the slang or the lingo that is used um, by people who use. Uh, I, I only learned, you know, uh, substances in, in a medical context. So we didn't necessarily learn all the different names that are used outside of the hospital walls. So I would really, I would think that it's really good for us to maybe just go through some of the common terms that um, you've heard uh, patients use and and what they translate to in, in more of like a medical context. For sure. And I think that's such an important part of of establishing rapport with a patient is 
you know, you, you may not know all of the words that they're using, but at least showing that you have some understanding of their world and their life with using some common terms that they, um, or knowing common terms that they may use, I think allows you to establish a level of trust and, and sort of some degree of kind of being on the same level or being on the same page. And so I do think it's really important. Um, I will also preface this by saying that a lot of the terminology around drug use uh, changes over time um, and so and is also often quite regionally specific. So a lot of terms, um, we'll discuss terms that are common within BC and specifically within Vancouver, but some of these definitely are sort of relatively specific to the West Coast. But I sort of group when I'm thinking about terms or our um, sort of street language around substance use, I sort of group it into three categories. I think of um, terminology around what the substances are, um, the quantity of substances that people are using, and then uh, the method that they're using by. And so I think some of the common terms to know uh, in terms of substances that people are using um, are up, down, and side. Uh, up referring specifically to stimulants. So that's usually cocaine, either in the form of powder cocaine or crack cocaine. Um, you'll often hear crack cocaine referred to as either just crack or as rock. And so all of those fall under the category of stimulants and being up. And you can think about that up being because of the stimulant effect they have. On the opposite side, you have down, which is referring to opioids and is not specific to any one opioid, but just to the category in general. Uh, although for the most part, I would say that this is usually referring to fentanyl nowadays, just based on what's in the drug supply. And then side is uh, crystal methamphetamine or crystal. Uh, the exact origin of that term, I'm not entirely sure of, but it's pretty commonly within, again, within BC and within Vancouver referred to as, as side. Um, some combinations that you'll often come across are uh, speedball and goofball. So speedball refers to the combination of cocaine and opioids, and goofball refers to crystal meth and opioids. And I find I say it's actually very, very common to see patients using um, a combination of, of substances, and actually, I would say increasingly rare to see people using exclusively opioids or exclusively uh, stimulants. It's often in combination. Uh, so that's sort of what I think about in terms of substances people are using. Um, thinking about quantities, I think the most common terms that you'll come across are um, a point, which refers to 0.1 of a gram, um, and then an eight ball or just a ball, which refers to an eighth of an ounce. So that's equivalent to essentially three and a half grams. So you may hear patients referring to using a ball or a half ball. Um, so a half ball would be half of an eight ball, which is 1.75 grams. Um, and then finally, uh, thinking about methods of injecting, or sorry, methods of, of uh, how people are using drugs. Obviously, smoking um, is one of them. Uh, but when we're thinking about injecting, um, people may refer to smashing, which is just to inject in any form. So whether that's IV, um, intramuscularly, subcutaneously, smashing just refers to injecting. Um, Muscling refers to intramuscular injection, and skin popping refers to subcutaneous injection. 
One other term that you might hear is jugging, which refers to injection directly into the jugular vein. Um, often this is, you know, a sign of pretty high risk uh, substance use, both because, um, you know, obviously that's a very um, sensitive area with a lot of um, very sensitive anatomy, arteries, veins um, around it. And so the risk of injecting into the jugular vein is quite high. And so often it means that people have either essentially lost vascular access in other more accessible areas from, uh, you know, having injected for a long time. The other time um, that jugging is used is that it can be used as a form of control. So as you can imagine, it's extremely difficult to inject into your own jugular vein. And so often it will be someone else injecting for them, um, which then can be used as a, as a method of, of control. That's really helpful, actually. It's such a good review of and the breakdown of what the terms are referring to in terms of substances and then quantity and then how people are using and the things to kind of red flags to keep in mind for for jagging specifically, because that is, I can imagine, quite a um, risky way or risky vein to go for in general. And so I could imagine how it can be um, used. Uh, yeah, other uh, some someone else must at at least I would imagine, I would hope that someone else is doing it because I can't imagine. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, just like phys the, the physical anatomy of yourself trying to do it to, to, uh, to like one one person trying to do, do it onto themselves. Yeah, it's quite quite difficult. So yeah. really, really good um, review of, of the terms. Um, and then I think with that, I was wanted to mention, I think what you mentioned at the beginning of like being able to use the terms that um, the people, the patients use is really helpful for build, building rapport. And as I became a bit more comfortable with using those terms, knowing what they meant, I think I got a little bit more, the, the social or the substance use history became a bit easier and that they were a little bit more forthcoming with what they were using because they um, maybe they assumed that I, I knew a little bit more. And there were times where, you know, there would be more terms thrown out that I didn't know, but I would kind of mirror that back write it down as as I could, as, as specifically as I could, and then I would take it back to one of the residents, a senior, or even like um, if I was around CPAS or um, at AMCTR, our su substance use uh, specialists or the teams that are around, um, and they would be able to tell me. So if there's something that you don't recognize, just write it down and then you can find out later what it is. I think that's one of the things that I found really, really helpful. Totally. And I think, um, you know, like I said, these terms change over time and over geography. And I think it's totally okay as well to to ask patients um, what they mean, particularly, you know, I think if you've kind of established some rapport with the patient by knowing some of the basic terms, um, you know, I, I think that can also be a really nice way to learn from our patients and sort of try and level out that power dynamic that exists between patients and providers a bit as well, that, you know, it's not just us imparting knowledge or, or wisdom on them, but that we are also learning from them as well. I think particularly if you've already demonstrated that you have some working knowledge of, of some of the common terms that then asking them, oh, you know, hey, I haven't heard, you know, I haven't heard of shatter before. What, what does that mean? Um, is totally okay to do as well. Or if you don't feel comfortable, absolutely finding a colleague or a, one of the addiction team specialists to ask is a great idea. Yeah. 
And with that, I want to go into like your approach when you are seeing a patient and you're going to take um, substance use history with keeping keeping in mind the things we talked about, not re-traumatizing patients who are already like marginalized and knowing what to ask also, because at times I think it's hard to know um, specific, like what specifics you need to get out of um of this history while still remaining sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it can be a really tough balance, especially when patients come in sick, either from you know a medical illness or sick from substance intoxication or substance withdrawal. It's it is definitely hard to to know sort of what the boundaries are of what to ask versus what information you really do need. Um, so I think I'll start by saying you know an an ideal textbook substance use history um, would include all of the things that go in your usual history. So your history of presenting illness, knowing what brought them into whatever clinical setting you're working in, um, knowing their past medical history, uh, both if there's any sequelae of their substance use or things that would affect the medications that you can give them. Do they have chronic kidney disease? Do they have liver disease? Things like that. Um, you obviously want to know their medications, allergies, um, and I think, you know, a, a really important part of the substance use history is the social history as well of understanding, um, you know, their living situation, their financial situation, uh, because I think so much of what drives substance use is a lot of the social history and, and their context. And it also really affects how we approach treatment in terms of what options are available. I think, you know, something that has always really stuck with me about the social history um, in people who uses who use substances. You know, someone first explain is first telling me, um, you know, about how they use substances or they use um, stimulants specifically to be able to stay awake when they live on the street or live in a shelter and feel unsafe. Um, and you know, people are are using stimulants to be able to stay up for days at a time to ensure that they are um, not physically harmed or that their their possessions aren't stolen and. I think that was a really powerful moment for me the first time I heard that from someone, um, just as a reminder of, you know, giving someone, you know, in that situation medications or counseling or something like that probably isn't really going to help their substance use when there's a very functional component to why they're using. Um, and I certainly since then have heard that about from many, many patients that there's really a, a functional component to why they're using, particularly if they're unhoused or living in in unsafe or kind of substandard housing. Um, so yeah, social history. Um, you then obviously want, you know, all of your investigations, your physical exam and things like that. Uh, I, th I think something that we or I certainly in internal medicine am not great at is doing a bit of a psychiatric history as well. Um, I'm not the best person to talk about this, but obviously we know that um, substance use disorders and other psychiatric illnesses um, can often be intertwined um, with, you know, substances causing or increasing the risk of certain mental illnesses um, and certain um, psychiatric illnesses increasing the risk of substance use. So I think that's a really important, even if you're not a psychiatrist, to have a, a basic understanding of. I think when we get to the actual substance use history itself, um, it's helpful to break it down into different substances. So I think of 
um, the main categories being nicotine, alcohol, opioids, stimulants, benzodiazepines, cannabis, and then anything else. So things like GHB, hallucinogens, um, ketamine, things falling under that kind of other category. Within each category, again, if this is a textbook, you know, perfect scenario, you want to know things like when their first use was. Um, so, you know, when was the first time they ever had a drink? Um, when they began using daily or began using more regularly? Um, if they have ever had sort of prolonged periods of abstinence and if how they achieved that abstinence um, and when their most recent period of abstinence was as well. You also want to know how much they're using uh, in terms of a quantity, how they're using, so root of root of ingestion, whether that's injecting or smoking. Um, you want to know about um, any symptoms of withdrawal or cravings that they have, uh, and you want to know when their last use was, again, to get a sense of, you know, on the spectrum of intoxication versus withdrawal where they might be, and that, that sort of would affect your... Um, your management as well. I think then it depends on sort of what the goal of your history is. If you're for the first time ever establishing a diagnosis of a substance use disorder, you'd want to start also to sort of inquiring around things like whether they've had consequences from their use, be that, um, you know, uh, harm to um, in social and interpersonal relationships, um, impacts on their job, um, impacts on their physical or mental health. Have they had, you know, infective endocarditis or, um, you know, infectious complications, um, seizures from withdrawal, things like that. So sort of fleshing out some of those DSM criteria around the, the sequelae and the complications of their use. I think if this is someone who has had a longstanding, well-established disorder, um, you know, substance use disorder, you don't necessarily need to get into that on on every visit. Um, but again, if we're talking about kind of the the perfect textbook initial substance use history, um, th those would be all the kind of things I want to know. And then depending on the substance as well, whether they've ever um, had any medical treatment, so any kind of pharmacotherapy for it, um, any uh, counseling or any kind of residential treatment as well would be sort of the main categories I'd think about. That's really helpful. And I really appreciate the tying in of social history and understanding why someone might be using, again, not going back to the the why of why is something happening rather than just accepting something's happening. Because like you said, if there is a very functional reason for someone's uh, substance use, then you're not going to all be necessarily offering them treatment if the reason for the substance use has not been resolved. Um, one of my questions, and I think a question that a lot of us, a lot of my friends had throughout med school is how to even broach the topic of substance use history and like getting substance use, uh, getting a good substance use history um, without, because it is so stigmatized. Um, mm -hmm. it, we always felt a little awkward around even bringing that up. So a lot of times it would be a very quick, and cursory um, talk on the subject, but as we kind of want to grow and be better and and also decrease the stigma around it, how do you approach just broaching the topic? 
Totally. And it's a, it's a great question and it is really hard and, and people can often be, because of that stigma, really defensive about it. Um, I think, you know, when you're working, I think I at the moment have the benefit of, of being on some of the addictions teams and we're, we're consulted when someone has already recognized that maybe there's an issue and so I can come in or they, the patient themselves has disclosed that there's an issue and so I can come in and kind of um, already have a bit of that that in there. But you're right, when you are just meeting someone for the first time in the emergency department or the clinic and you're trying to find out if there may be something going on, um, it definitely is a lot harder. I think just no- normalizing it and and reassuring your patient that this is something that you ask everyone and that you ask not out of a desire to judge them or to, you know, just kind of pry, but that um, you know, substances can have a huge impact on people's health and that you want to be able to get sort of a full picture of their health and things that might be affecting them and that one of the things that can affect that is substances. Um and, and not making kind of assumptions about based on someone's age and socioeconomic status, what um, or other factors, what they may or may not use. Um, and so I think just just telling patients, you know, I ask this because I want to have a really good understanding of, of what's going on and what uh, what, you know, might be causing whatever presenting complaint they're coming with. Um, and and yeah, asking about it in a place of that comes from a place of wanting to be able to provide good health care to them and not wanting to judge or stigmatize them. But it is, it's tough. I don't know that there's a a great answer beyond just kind of repetition and and recognizing that some people may be defensive about that and that's not a reason not to continue to ask um, and is a reflection often of people's own internalized stigma, um, but not that you're doing something wrong. I think that last bit is really helpful of not taking it personally um, and, and you know, immediately thinking that it was the in some something that you have done um, as the, the history taker, as a trainee in that situation, because um, it can feel like you have done something wrong or you've not finished your task. My question is sometimes, like you said, patients can become defensive because of that stigma that is um, that is um, surround substance use. Are there any um, phrases or terms or sentences that you found helpful in signaling that you know you are a safe space to share those um, experiences without judgment and you know making them feel like they can um, share those experiences with you and build that rapport with with you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think to some extent, it comes back to understanding why people use and being able to normalize use within the context of their life. And so if this is, you know, for example, someone who has been through a lot of trauma, um, you know, saying like, one of the ways that people often cope with trauma um, is by trying to numb that experience. and by using substances. And so given what you've been through, it would be so understandable um, if you did use substances as a way to cope. And that would be, you know, com- I could completely see that being being a, a way to cope. Um, you know, is that something that you have done? Or if someone has chronic pain saying, you know, it's very common for people who have chronic pain to eventually become dependent and 
on on opioids and um you know i can totally see how this would have happened and so i think again kind of giving people permission that it is not a a moral failing but that often or in the vast majority of of cases substance use begins as a coping mechanism of some kind and so i think that if you're able to uncover what um may have triggered things and say you know, it is so understandable that in the situation you're in, or like in the situation I brought up earlier of, you know, using stimulants to stay awake, like it is so understandable that when you are living on the street and you feel constantly threatened, like totally, of course you would need to use stimulants to stay awake. Like anyone in that position would need, would probably do the same thing. And so, yeah, I think making it more about how they have used it as a coping mechanism or recognizing where that use may have come from and that that is a fairly normal human response as opposed to um, a moral failing on their part. And that's not always possible and and people may be defensive anyway, but I think that is one thing that you can do. That actually totally makes sense to validate it and normalize it in the context of their experiences. So related back to what, like what you said as it may have started as a coping mechanism and that it's not just them it's anyone in that situation might be might also resort to using substances so that that actually is quite helpful i think uh sometimes it becomes a bit difficult because of the stigma around substance use to be able to connect with patients but being able to turn that around and like you said remove it from a personal problem to put it to towards a situation like anyone in that situation could have also made the same choice rather than you in that situation made that choice so to attribute it to a, a coping mechanism that might that was necessary or helpful in 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 their specific um, living context. For um, sure. I wanted to I wanted to ask um, if you have anything else that you want to talk about within the um, within the history taking. Yeah, I think um, a couple of things. I think. Um, one of the most important things about these patients is, you know, as we've talked about, they often feel incredibly uncomfortable in medical circumstances because of experiences that they've had in the past or because of fear of of stigma and judgment. Um, and I think that there's a lot of things, sort of small things that we can do that may be tough, um, you know, may not always sort of feel immediately necessary or immediately important. Um, I have found can make a really huge difference in terms of developing a rapport with patients is sort of meeting their basic needs. So, you know, these are people who may not have food security. And so when you go in saying, hey, you know, are you hungry? Did you have breakfast? Did you have dinner? Can I grab you a snack? Do you need a sandwich? Um, you know, recognizing that these are are people who have basic human needs that may not being be being met. Um, you know, or if someone is shivering and uncomfortable in withdrawal, a blanket's not going to fix it, but getting them a blanket shows that you are invested in them being comfortable in that setting. Um, or, you know, if they are acutely in withdrawal, um, you know, depending on your position and depending on the circumstance and if it's appropriate, but offering to get them, you know, a dose of something before you have your conversation. And again, I recognize that that's not always possible based on what your role is, what the medical scenario is, um, 
you know, what time pressures may exist. Um, but I think when you can, you know, saying, hey, you know, do you need a dose of lorazepam or do you need a dose of hydromorphone before we chat? Like, I can do that. I can I can get that for you. Um, and I think all of those things not only make them physically more comfortable, but I think also show that you recognize humanity in them um, and that they have and that there are simple and basic things you can do to to help them be more comfortable. And I think we've talked a lot today about sort of the role of of trauma and how medical systems have contributed to trauma. And so just being aware of that and and trying not to re-traumatize or, or re-trigger people wherever possible. Yeah, I think those were the main things I wanted to add. I do really appreciate that. And it's really interesting because I chatted with um, Dr. Hubinet on um, trauma-informed care, which is an episode that'll come out later in the fall. Um, and awesome. she also mentioned, um, you know, bring them a sandwich and bring them a blanket before you get started. So I just found that like, you know, really um, th there's a huge overlap between like substance use and being trauma informed in substance use or addiction, addiction medicine circles. Um, so I do really appreciate that reinforcement of remember your patients are humans with functions just like everybody else right or needs just like everybody else yeah i'm really excited to listen to that episode that'll be great yeah um i was a, it was a really wonderful discussion with dr cubanet and she's just um so lovely and, and very passionate about um talking about trauma-informed care and and kind of lifelong learning in that sense as well so it was a really really good discussion i wanted to ask you what are your pearls in you know good old-fashioned medicine, we talk about our pearls. So what pearls do you have for medical trainees, whether they're med students or uh, residents? Yeah, great, great question. I would, yeah, I would love to be able to give many, many pearls. But um, I think the main, I think the main ones are really around um, recognizing the humanity of your patients, um, recognizing that substance use almost always comes from a place of uh, being a coping mechanism or trying to fulfill an unmet need. Uh, and so I think the more that we're able to uncover what that is, the more successful that we will be in really treating substance use disorders and in making connections with patients. We obviously have really great medications in, in addictions medicine that can do a lot, but without sort of addressing those underlying drivers and needs of substance use, um, you know, it's hard to really address the underlying illness um, that addiction really is. And so I think recognizing that humanity and, and trying to dig and find when appropriate um, where that may come from. I think the other thing I would like to say is that, you know, we talked about what an ideal substance use history would be and recognizing that it is not always appropriate to get an ideal substance use history. If someone is uncomfortable and sick and miserable, it's very okay. And I think, you know, as as med students and residents, we like to have all the answers and all the information. And, you know, we feel like it's our job to have, have all of that information gathered. Um, but just encourage people that it is, it's really okay to not get um, everything on that first day if the patient's uncomfortable, if they really don't want to talk to you, um, you know, doing what you can to make them more comfortable and then just getting the information that you really need 
to form a plan for the next 24, 48 hours. And so um, in some cases, that may be just knowing, you know, not even knowing what all of the substances they use, but, you know, what are the main few, how much do they use and when was their last use and, you know, what does their withdrawal look like or do they feel like they're in withdrawal? Um, you know, so much of addiction treatment is about longitudinal relationships and and working on things over time and you have time with people or there will be time to gather more of that, you know, when was your first cigarette? What was the longest abstinence you had? And it's not always appropriate or necessary to ask that, um, you know, on the first day in order to treat people safely and and treat people well um, and that you don't want to make people's experience worse by asking a ton of questions. And so as much as it can be tough to come back to your attending and say, you know, I really didn't get a whole lot of information to feel comfortable saying, you know what, it is actually the better thing for my patient right now to to be judicious with what I'm asking and ask the things that I really need to know, um, not everything that there possibly is to know. I really appreciate that. And I think even that, like the judicious use of questioning goes back to remembering the humanity of that patient um, and what they need in that situation. And especially, I think something that I've noticed as like uh, as a resident is that I'm, not, I'm no longer just collecting information and then going back and sitting down at the computer to write out a plan, but it's also responding to the patient in that moment, whether it's um, they're acutely in withdrawal or they're exhibiting signs of hypoglycemia. It's it's medicine happens while you're at the bedside as well. And you can make those changes, whether if it's medically indicated or if you can recognize that the patient is not in um, a place where they can feel comfortable to respond to those questions, whether you haven't had the chance to build that rapport or they're going through active withdrawal. Um, it's really, I think it's been some, one of the things that I've been trying to also uh, recognize and work on of when is the appropriate time to put on my internal medicine hat and be asking all the questions to get the, the best history and where is a more appropriate time to just uh, let them kind of rest and feel a bit more comfortable before I can come back and, you know, talk to them, whether it's me or another person in the morning who can get a better history because they've been able to sleep in a bed that they feel safe in for the first time or for a, that they feel first, um, they feel safe in for the first time in a while, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's, I do really appreciate that. And I think maybe we'll, um, maybe I'll have another chat together and for another episode and talk a little bit more about the different um, uh, substance use disorders and how we can uh, the treatment options available and how we can talk people through that. But this has been a really lovely time chatting with you. Um, it was really great to have you on. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I look forward to chatting again. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, stay tuned for another episode next month. Thanks for tuning in to Just Medicine. 